Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Uh, now we're going to be uh, reading our scripture passage for today, so I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 27, um, but we'll also be reading verses 41 through 48, as this gives some insight into what this parable is about. As a reminder, where we are in our series, we're doing a series called Stories Along the Way. And these are all stories that happen after Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. Every story, every parable that is unique to Luke in, in this section of 10 chapters it are stories that are intentionally placed along the way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And here, we're at the, the doorstep to Jerusalem. He is at uh, the, the tax collector Zacchaeus's house, and that is in Jericho. And Jericho is right near Jerusalem. Uh, before we read God's word this morning, let's Uh, Pray to God for illumination. Send your spirit among us, O God, that as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, prepare our minds to hear your word, move our hearts to accept what we hear, purify our will to obey in joy and faith. We pray this through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 19, Uh, the title for this sermon is A Napkin and a King. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had done with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came in and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servants. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? 
Then he gave it to those standing by. Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. To verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and leaders among them of the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but uh, when I first read through this parable, it struck me as, as a little bit strange uh, a little bit hard to understand. And in my studying, I found it really helpful to try to put on the, the mind of, of a first century Jewish person. So I want to just add a couple of details in here to help us understand perhaps uh, what Jesus was getting at. Let's say you live in Israel, uh, but the ultimate rule right now is under Rome. So there is a person that they call Caesar who is in a distant land. He lives very far away. And whenever a king dies, they're, they're a nobleman would, would travel to Rome and appeal to Caesar and to say, make me king over this land. And that's the exact sort of situation that Jesus is talking about. This actually happened around the time uh, that Jesus was one or two and Herod died. Um, Herod uh, Archelaus uh, went to Caesar to appeal for that rule. This is something that they would have known. And Jesus now tells a story of a nobleman going to Caesar or going to uh, solidify his rule. Uh, but before he goes, he gives uh, a people a, a mina. Now, it might say pound. It might say something else. It's a, a type of currency that he's talking about. Uh, this would have been around $20,000, so it's a significant sum of money. And, and this nobleman says to each of the servants, put this money to work. He gives them a specific command that they are to do something with that money. Uh, but a lot of them didn't want to do anything. They actually sent a delegation with him as, as he traveled. We do not want this man as their king. Now, when this person comes back, 
and he is given the office of king, he calls the servants to him. Two of the servants, at least, worked with the money, and they're rewarded for it. But one of the servants, and the one that gets the most attention in Jesus' story, is the one who hid it with a cloth. It's a bit of a strange thing. This person doesn't put the money to work at all, and he's reprimanded uh, alongside the rebellious people who, who rebelled against him. Now, I want to zero in on the story uh, of the person with the, the cloth or the napkin. I think this person helps unlock the parable for us. Now, I think also in reading this parable, we might get it confused with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Uh, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable with very similar lines to it, and it's very much about stewardship and stewarding the good things that God has given us. Uh, the parable here in Luke chapter 19 is different. Luke adds different details. Uh, he has Jesus telling the story differently, and he puts it in a different place in the gospel narrative. And we're going to pay special attention to that placement, uh, but also to the differences here. To take a deeper look at the person with the cloth, let's look at what we know about this person. Uh, we know he was one of the persons that was given one mina, so he was given about $20,000, and he was told specifically, do something with this, put this money to work. We also know that this person chose to do nothing with it. Uh, he chose to wrap it in the cloth. Uh, this is an embarrassingly terrible plan. Uh, I have some drawings here. Um, if, if we put this in terms of gold, uh, so uh, $20,000 of gold is about 10 ounces in this currency. I did some research. Um, and you're given some gold and you have the option of putting it in a lockbox, something like secure, or you have the option of putting it in a bank and maybe earning some interest over it, or you have a napkin. Uh, the, the napkin's like transparent, uh, it doesn't hide the money at all, and you choose of your options this one. This is, this is beyond being lazy. Uh, this is a person who is irresponsible, he's being careless. Uh, there, there's writing uh, from the time of Jesus' day of the type of person that stores their money in a napkin, and it's never in flattering terms. It's never like, be like that person. The person that is hiding this money in the napkin to try to keep it safe is basically saying he doesn't think he's going to be held accountable. This person perhaps doesn't think that the nobleman will actually return. He doesn't want to put the money to work. He doesn't want to do that extra work. In uh, these excuses, he talks about being afraid. Uh, maybe he's afraid of the, the consequences of if he loses some of that or if he doesn't treat it quite right. Well, the others expanded and worked hard on the money that was given. He thought he could just be part of the new kingdom by waiting it out. Now, who does this person represent? Who, when Jesus is telling the story, who is the one that hides it in the cloth? Well, Jesus would have been speaking this as a word of judgment against Israel. And I think this parable can be, or this uh, parallel can be seen more clearly when we look at uh, some of the practices of the religious elite of the day. So 
they were given, uh, if we go back to Exodus chapter 19 and, and this covenant commitment that God makes with his people, this is looked at as this treasure that God gives his people. He gives them this good law that would allow them to live into flourishing a place where there is justice that abounds, where mercy abounds, where people welcome the neighbor, uh, and there's other uh, commands that go alongside it. But ultimately, this was a treasure that was meant to be worked, to be brought into the world that they could be a blessing for others. At the time of Jesus' day, when they're looking at these laws, they, they were afraid of it. They, they would look at the details of the laws and they would focus on particular things. They had something surrounding the Sabbath day where they would look at how many steps they were allowed to take because they knew it was a time of resting, so they had to have lots of rules around that. They looked at their dietary laws in it and they would have rules surrounding if, if a fly died and, and landed in their soup, if they were still allowed to eat it because of uh, cleanliness rituals that was a, uh, surrounding uh, dead animals. Uh, they had rules around tithing. They knew that they were supposed to tithe 10% of everything they got. So they, they would look at the, the spices and herbs and the smallest of things and make sure that they gave 10% of absolutely everything. They would focus on all these rules. They were afraid of the consequences there, but in the process, they neglected the actual command. They, they neglected the fact that they were supposed to be a people that were to be a blessing, that they were to live into the justice and, and mercy uh, that God had commanded them. They were giving something precious that they were supposed to steward, and their half-hearted attempts at living this out showed that they were not being faithful. Their inattentiveness to the injustices showed that they were being sloppy with something that needed much more care. This is potentially a stern word for us. This is something that should have us paying attention. It calls into question, what do we do with the good things that God gives us? Perhaps we can think of it in terms of the gospel message itself. Do we steward it well? Or are we hiding it in a napkin? Are we rule followers who think we can just get by by playing it safe? Are we engaged in our lives, in, in our week-to-week -week living with evangelism? Do we have ways of professing our faith to those in our community who do not know Jesus? Or are we so afraid of messing it up that we don't even try? Do we, get, we set up all sorts of rules that we're supposed to follow rather than pay attention to the life of generosity that the gospel calls us towards? The gospel calls for attention towards the vulnerable and the weak, to pay attention to the way that the Spirit prompts us wherever we go, whether at home or at work or at school or in our retirement. The danger is that we take this precious gift of God's grace for us and thinking that we're, we're meant to, to keep it safe, to keep it hidden, where we don't tend to it and see it grow. That this parable should raise up questions in ourselves of what does it mean to live faithfully? It should take seriously the mandate to actively deepen our faith and bring it out into the world.
that's part one. That's the napkin. Now to look at the, the second part, the king. Returning to the passage, I want to zoom way out uh, on the story. I, I'm not, I want, want us to only pay attention to what's happening in Luke, uh, but what's happening in the story of Israel right now? So if you take a class on the history of the time of Jesus in Israel, uh, you'll find that it's called the Second Temple Period. Uh, what's important about the Second Temple Period is that it's not the first temple anymore. Uh, there's two temples, or the, the second one that had to be built. Uh, another thing that's important to know about the Second Temple Period um, is that the temple is the focal point of it. Uh, it could have been called the, the period of the, the revolts. It could have been told uh, the, the period of Roman um, enslavement. But they call it the Second Temple Period because that is the center of their attention throughout that time. So to go back to some pictures here, we have, oh, I don't have my pen with me. I was going to draw all over this, but we'll have to imagine that I drew on it. Um, you have this first temple, and, and what made this complete was God's presence um, coming in to dwell in the temple. And then, after they were pulled into exile, they destroyed the temple. They, they pulled it apart. Uh, it looked worse than that, but that's about as good as I could do with my time. And when they came back from exile, they, they rebuilt it. But something made it incomplete. And, and it wasn't the fact that there were cracks along it. What made it incomplete was the fact that God's presence never came back to dwell within the temple. So we, we have this, this second temple period and this incomplete temple. There's this time of waiting for God's presence to return to that space. And different groups started developing with different theories of what it would take for God's presence to come back to the temple. Uh, you might recognize some of the names of these groups. They're the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes. There were more groups. Uh, but it's, it's these groups, the differences between them could all be boiled down to what does it take to get God's presence back to the temple? Why is that important in this story? Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem, towards the place of the temple. Jesus is God incarnate, walking towards the temple. He is bringing God's presence back. And he is now at Jericho. He's, he's at the gates. Like, this is... If we're traveling from Alberta to Abbotsford, like he's in Chilliwack here. Like he's right at the door. And you know that everyone seeing the story would understand that. And while he's in Jericho, he tells a story about a king that is returning to bring his rule. And it brings judgment as well as mercy. This is followed in the same chapter by Jesus walking into Jerusalem and going straight to the temple. And when he gets to the temple itself, Jesus kicks out the people who did not do the job that God had gave them. Looking at chapter 19, verse 45 here, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. 
Uh, he comes to the temple like the nobleman who has returned as king and pronounces his judgment. He has found the people surrounding the temple making money off of religion rather than caring for the helpless. And Jesus is uncovering the actions of the money changers here as people who are profiting from religion. He's exposing them basically as the napkin people. They're just kind of sitting on their money. They're not doing the good thing with God's rule that was intended. He's basically saying to them, take away their minus from them. Get these people out of my sight. They are not doing God's work. And this could be a shock, especially for the people that thought uh, being anti-Rome was being the same thing as being pro-God's kingdom. The people often thought that being against the kingdom of Rome meant being for the kingdom of God. And I think that's a point worth repeating and pointing out because sometimes I think we as the church have a similar mentality. We can think that being against cultural movements is the same as being for the kingdom of God. We, in our places of fear, will often create rules to make us think that we're okay and that we're safe. Whether this is in how we respond to restrictions, whether this is in uh, resistance to to changes in, in dynamics of family within our culture, or perhaps this has to do with our understanding of what it means to be politically on the left or, or on the right. We sometimes give ourselves false security in being glad we're not on the wrong side. At least we're against Rome. But neglect to probe further to see if we're moving towards the kingdom of God and what we're doing. Jesus makes it clear Uh, For those who are excited about the kingdom because they just assumed that God was going to be on their side, or at least they assumed that he was going to be against Rome, he says, I am God coming back to the temple, and I am indeed bringing the kingdom with me, but it's a much different kingdom than what you anticipated. The kingdom isn't going to be built around Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is going to receive judgment. Uh, We read in the passage, not not a stone will be left on it. Jesus is establishing an everlasting kingdom that is much different than what they had expected. Now, at the end of the parable, and you see the, the, the judgment that it talks about, and it leaves you perhaps a little bit squeamish, if you're uncomfortable with that judgment, I think it's really helpful to see where Jesus takes this. Uh, Jesus doesn't speak this judgment simply with with a smile and a grin and say, well, these people had it coming to them. When you read a little bit further, we find in verse 41, Jesus' posture here. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over the city. He he cries and laments over the destruction that is coming their way. He cries because they they missed the vision of peace. He, He cries because 
He loves these people despite their rebellion. And I think this is a point that we should also pay attention to here because Christians don't always have the reputation of being those who weep in the midst of the judgment that we pronounce. We're more known for speaking judgment with a glint in our eye. Uh, you will be judged, but, but we will be fine. This gives a window, perhaps, into what our tone should be. When we speak words of judgment, we do well in remembering that the judgment of God's loved people brings tears to his face. And more than tears, we find that God does not pronounce judgment and then go away. He doesn't just say that they're guilty and then leave them to it. This is Lent, after all, and this is a journey towards the cross. The one who speaks this judgment not only weeps on their behalf, but seeks them in their lost state. He is willing to step further and offer salvation. He sacrifices for those who rebel against him. He knows rejection lies in front of him, yet he still moves forward. He still moves towards the cross. He knows that this will actually involve suffering, and yet he still steps towards the cross on their behalf. This is gospel news. This, this is good news for us. God sees us in our failure. He sees us in the midst of our sin, and yet he still steps forward for us. With us, uh, in, in our rebellion, in our failures, in our sin, we see in this story Jesus' persistent movement towards the cross and this is a reminder that he didn't simply go to the cross despite the fact that people were sinning, despite the fact that people were rebelling against him. He goes to the cross for those that were rebelling. This should propel us towards gospel freedom. With Jesus as our king, we don't simply need to be these fearful, rule-keeping people. We don't need to be people that, that guard and try to hide a treasure that's in a napkin. But we are to be people that steep ourselves in the awareness of God's grace and to take that grace and to bring it into practice in our lives. It should propel us into lives of faithful living, attentive to the Spirit and how the Spirit guides us where we go. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for Jesus and the example that he brings, suffering on behalf of others. And more than that, thank you that you do not just give us an example and the burden of following it perfectly. That Jesus' journey ultimately led to the cross, his death and resurrection that brings an ultimate freedom. That in the face of of the people who rebelled against the true king, you still died for us. That through your spirit, we pray that we be kingdom people. Those who live in this in-between time, actively working with what you have given us as we wait 
for you to come again and bring the final judgment where you will bring all things under your good and perfect care. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.